listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Brent Burks. Brent is a partner in the McMahon Law Firm, Chattanooga's most prolific and largest personal injury law firm. Brent and his partner, Jay Kenimer, emphasize helping people in dire situations, and they take that same attitude to their decade-long sponsorship of Pay It Forward, where they reward Chattanooga's silent heroes with $500 each week for the work they do to help others. Brent, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we find out if that's really you and Jay on top of those trucks, tell me, what is in your morning cup? Well, coffee, first of all. <laughs> I'm a coffee drinker. Get some caffeine going. And uh, I like a little sugar. No no cream. Uh, got a little bit of a sweet tooth and uh, fairly strong. So you like a dark roast? I do. Oh, good. Well, we're glad to have you here. I've known you a while. I've gotten to know both you and Jay over the years. But kind of take us back to growing up in Chattanooga. You grew up here before really the town transitioned into what it is today. So if you don't mind, start out with growing up in Red Bank. Well, I'm the third of four boys. My mom always wanted a girl <laughs> and think everything in the house was broken at some point. I never thought I was poor. Maybe we weren't poor, but we were definitely lower middle class. My mom was a stay at home most of my formative years. And my dad worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield in claims review and shared a room with my brother. And remember growing up very plainly, no air conditioning in our room. And this is not one of those stories walking uphill in the snow, I promise. But, <laughs> Both ways. But remember being in the summertime, laying there with a fan in the window, waiting until it to cool down before I could fall asleep. And yeah. so that's something even my kids couldn't fathom today. But we had a lot of love and a great family probably skinny because of having two older brothers and my dad. And if I didn't eat kind of quick, I never got any second helpings. You probably had a lot of running away from them too, as they were chasing you to. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I had an older brother and we used to beat on each other a little bit, like most brothers fighting a little bit. And we laugh about it now, but it was real at the time. Did your mother not understand that? Because I grew up with three brothers also. And my mother would look at me and say, why can't y'all just get along? I would have given anything for a sibling. Well, yeah, they don't understand, I don't think, and they would leave the oldest brother in charge if they ever got a date night, which was seldom, but when they did, they'd be like, no, Sean, my oldest brother, he's in charge, and I always want to say it's like letting the fox guard the hen house. And as soon as they left, it's like, oh, man, here's martial law. <laughs> so is that what piqued your interest in law and personal injury and protecting those who can't protect well, themselves? Well, no, there's, that's a good story. Growing up, I was a talker. Surprise, surprise, I still am, and my parents planted the idea in my head. They just said, you ought to go into law because I probably spent a lot of time talking, number one, and then I got to the point where I was a certain age and I'd probably argue with them. I was probably stubborn and uh, wanted to voice my opinions on things. And I always thought, even though they thought they knew what was best for me, and they probably did, I thought I knew better, right? And it sounds like you won some of those arguments. I won some of those arguments, but mom and dad both planted the idea in my head really at an early age, like elementary school age, that I ought to be a lawyer. And I was one of those few people, yeah, I'm sure I was a certain age and toyed with ideas of medicine or you go through little fads, but generally I never wavered from the idea that I would like to be in the courtroom and cross-examining people and trying to persuade and making arguments to either a judge or jury. And How I old just, were you when you realized that? I really think by like 10 years old, that was something I always wanted to do. And I did toy with the idea of medicine. Blood doesn't bother me. I'm not mechanical, so I could have never been a surgeon. But I always wanted to help people, and I love working with people. And I don't want to work for a big corporation. I never wanted to do that. 
and I found what I'm good at. I didn't want to be in a firm with 50 partners and I have one partner and we get along really well and our bosses are our clients. I'm blessed in that regard. So in terms of growing up and knowing you wanted to be a lawyer, did you have a favorite legal TV show? Was there anything that you watched and said, I want to be a lawyer like Barnaby Jones? Or- well, all of them. And I don't know what year. I used to love Matlock because that was probably later on, obviously, when that show started. Of course, that was based on a real life character, but loosely. But just how he would always find a way to win the case with wit and yeah. charm and that kind of thing. But as you get older and you become a lawyer, you realize how fictionalized <laughs> they really all are. But it was just something that was planted in my head. And I think deep down, part of it also, my dad wished he had became a lawyer. He got a four-year degree and then I think got married and started having children. And it just didn't happen. We didn't go on to law school. And life would, interrupted. Life interrupted, right. Like a lot of folks. And he said, Brent, I know a lot of lawyers. I wish I'd done that. And uh, he always planted that idea in my head too. And he's like, you could do it. Just go hard and keep your nose down for seven straight years. Don't take any breaks. Your parents saw something in you and really tried to bring that out and direct you to it. So you go to UT as a political science major? Yes, UTC here in Chattanooga. The point there was I lived at home and it wasn't a punishment, but I paid, right? There there was no extra money. They didn't say like, oh, here's your trust fund. Go to college. It also taught you some responsibility. (laughs) Yeah, go get a a job, Brent, if you want to go to college. So I did. And I was the kind of person before I turned 16, I called and lined up about four different jobs. I had a job at Shoney's for two days, and then Kmart called me. (laughs) I mean, literally. And I said, I'm getting out of working in the grease, and I think I got a paycheck for like $37 for my two days. But but I went to this retail job, and $3.40 an hour. And minimum wage was three thirty five, and I was real proud of that. I got that extra nickel. <laughs> and I'm driving this family 1977 Impala station wagon that's yellow, and it, and it keeps running after you turn it off. It's one of those cars. You and, were a man uh, about town. Yeah. So there weren't going to be any dates in that vehicle, so I figured out real quickly. I said, Dad, I got to get something else. So if I could take a girl out on a date, it's not embarrassing. Yeah. And he understood. And so then I got a $1,000 Ford Fiesta, and one of the window cranks, was plastic and had broken. So for <laughs> for a short while, I had vice grips that roll up and down the windows. But so I like to tell people, look, I understand my clients. A lot of my clients don't have much, and so I can understand them. I lived that all the way through law school, certainly, and even a few years after. And so I've been there and done that. So you go from UTC to UT Law, and your experiences growing up really directed towards the law. What directed you to personal injury? Did you come out of law school and immediately join McMahon? Well, no, not exactly. I always knew I wanted to do courtroom work, and law school is a little bit of a feeling out process, and the interview process is also that too. You can take curriculum to sort of point you in the direction of what you want to do, and in that regard, I took a lot of litigation and pre-litigation classes, so I knew I wanted to do litigation, but within that realm could be criminal, could be divorce, could be civil, personal injury as I do, could be the plaintiff side, which I do, or it could be the defense side. So I start out I'm interviewing with a lot of defense firms because that's the majority of who does hiring on campus. And originally, I was going to stay in Knoxville. I liked Knoxville. I love Chattanooga. Obviously, I'm from here. But I had worked. They don't let you work your first year, but after your second year, you can start working. So I worked for a firm there, and it was a great experience. And it was one senior partner who was about 65 and a couple of younger partners, and they made me a young associate. So a small firm that did a little bit of plaintiff's work, but mostly defense work. And they had offered me a job, and so I was all set to stay in Knoxville. And then in my third year of law school, the senior partner had a tragic accident where he died in a car crash. Oh, wow. So the firm came to me, and they are like, sorry, Brent, but the firm's dissolving. So it's very late in the process. A lot of the bigger firms had already hired. And you'd already counted on this. Already counted on it. 
and it was really my faith plays a part in this. I'm a Christian and I believe everything's for a purpose, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me in retrospect because what I would have made and that type of thing and what I ended up doing is way better. But I had to basically come back to Chattanooga because this is where my people are, right? Everybody that I knew, my family, and I sort of hung my own shingle at the very beginning. Everybody said, well, you tell us when you pass the bar and then we'll probably have a job for you. But no one will take a chance on you. The littler firms at that time would not unless you'd already passed the bar. So there's a gap there. So like you graduate in May, take the bar in July, and you don't find out the results till like September. So I'm back here for a couple of months kind of waiting to find out. And of course, I passed the bar, but those few months were tough. But what I went and did is I went and saw and I called around and I was really persistent to some older lawyers, established lawyers, and said, hey, will you hire me? Will you hire me? Will you hire me? I'll work hard for you, that kind of thing. I pestered them. And I went to see judges and got appointments on criminal defense cases, juvenile court, guardian ad litems on like conservatorships, anything that would pay me money, basically. And I learned a lot. I got to know these judges. They're like, who is this young guy? You were networked. I was networking. And so then I got a phone call from a friend of mine that graduated with me. And he said, look, um, I'm going to work for Jerry Summers. I said, congratulations, Jimmy, you know. And and, uh, he goes, I hear Sam Robinson's looking. And and Sam was an established lawyer here, been a county commissioner. And I called up Sam and he goes, yeah, I need somebody to help me with some litigation work. And this is in 1994, right? And I tell the story, and I'm real proud of it, actually. And Sam, if you hear this, then maybe you don't remember this, but it's true. My first job was I'll pay $1,000 a month, so $12,000 a year. And that would be to handle my litigation. You go out and get all the work you can get. If you get divorces, criminal defense work, occasionally you could get a personal injury, but it's really hard as a brand new lawyer, then you keep that. I think my first year, I made $45,000 or something. I was hustling. I was just hustling. Yeah. I tried a bunch of drug cases and theft cases, and then my pinnacle in the criminal world was I tried a murder case in May of 1997 and won an acquittal for this person. And at the time, it was the first acquittal, I think, for a criminal defendant charged with murder in, like, they had told me, like, in a decade. But around that time, John McMahon was looking. He had started his own firm in about 94, about the time I started with Sam, and grown and was looking for a young associate. And... Two things told me he saw me in court a number of times, and then he also went to see each one of the circuit judges and said, who would you hire of the young crop of lawyers that are out there? And they all kept saying Brent Burks, Brent Burks. So I was really flattered by that. And the rest is kind of history. He said, let's go to dinner, and you bring your wife, and I'll bring my wife, and we'll just get to know each other. And then he offered me the job, and it was sort of the best thing that ever happened to me. So you cut your teeth in the courtroom. Oh, yeah. Kind of hard scrabble. You started networking, but people start to take notice based on what you're doing in your talent. And that brought Absolutely. you the opportunity and, with John McMahon. I want to be real honest. What I will tell people is I learned the hard way, and you get your butt kicked a few times. Okay. And I don't want to like sit here and say, oh, I never lost a case or something like that. There's an old adage about lawyers that say if somebody says they never lost a case, we always say, well, then they've never really tried very many. Because when you're brand new and starting out, no one had really showed me much of anything. The older lawyers could run circles around me, quite frankly, early on. But I was earnest, and I wanted to try hard. And when something happened that went against me or I did something wrong I never made that mistake again I learned that's a quick way to learn and then by the time I got with John I had an older lawyer that could be my mentor who he was the original insider of course because he had worked for insurance companies for 15 years and was a heck of a trial lawyer being John yeah big John yeah he taught me the ropes about what not to do I mean I 
he loved the fact that I was willing to try and I was never scared and I was raw, but made me unpolished is the best way to put it. <laughs> Were you the first associate he hired to join his firm? Yeah. When I first came, it was John, a secretary, a receptionist, one paralegal and me. Wow. And so now we have our 10th lawyer and probably 27 or eight support staff. How did those early years of scrambling and cutting your teeth in the courtroom, how did that help you out today? Well, it helps me a lot of ways. I mean, the best way is I can get a file, like here's a good example. I have an associate who, a female associate who's a wonderful young lawyer who's on maternity leave. And I took back over a bunch of files for a few months. Some of them had hearings coming up pretty quickly. But I get the file and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. So I got to read this file and I'm, I'm not the slightest bit nervous or worried about it because I know I can handle it. So it built confidence. It built my confidence. Well, and not just that, that I know my way around the courtroom. I know the system. I know the judges. I know that if I prepare, that I'm going to do a good job. If I meet with my clients and get to know what their real situation is, I know what to ask. And I've got some God-given ability just to question witnesses and to get to the gist of what the issue is. But that's one example. And then secondly, I think really, really makes me appreciate where I'm at. Because, I mean, I scrambled. There was several years there where, and even really starting with John in the very beginning, I mean, it was kind of eat what you kill. I didn't start out with some big fat salary. What lawyers start out now at the Miller Martins of the world, it's astonishing to me. And the market pays what it is demanded, and Mm -hmm. I get that. I'm not criticizing anybody. But, yeah, I remember starting out, and it's like, here's your list of 25 files, and you'll get, say, 20% or 25% or whatever it was of what you kill. And so... If I wanted to sit there and be lazy, which wasn't me, right, I wouldn't make much. But I had, at that point, a wife, and my son wasn't born yet, but still we needed to make money, right? (laughs) Well, and we have a a number of salespeople who listen to this podcast, and not everyone always equates being a lawyer with being a businessman. But for a great sense, you're out there doing the same thing. You eat what you kill. We're absolutely business people. And, uh, you know, we had a judge here and a lawyer, Bob Moon, who's passed now. And Bob was a friend and a mentor to me. And he used to say, as a trial lawyer, you wake up unemployed every day. <laughs> and I loved it. That's a refreshing outlook. I loved it. it. <laughs> yeah. I knew exactly what he meant. It's it's a little over the top, right? You've still got some clients, but you just settled a case yesterday. You got <laughs> You got to replace that case. And so Bob was a mentor, a defense lawyer named Phil Fleischner was a great mentor to me, retired Supreme Court Justice and Circuit Judge Mickey Parker was a mentor to me. And of course, John McMahon was my biggest mentor. John taught me, of course, how to try a case the right way. He and I have different personalities. He was way more fiery than I am. My style is to kill him with kindness. And I can be mean if I've got to be, but that's my last resort. But John taught me really, number one, work hard, work the case up the best you can, But he taught me don't get too high or don't get too low. And that's the best thing he ever taught me. Like, we have a great victory one day. And I've told this story many times. But, like, one time we went and had a $1.75 million verdict, which was a huge verdict. This was around 2000 probably. And this gentleman that had fallen and had neck and back surgery. And we're walking back from the courthouse. And I'm thinking, we're going to go celebrate. We're going to go out for drinks or something like that. And John's like going to go pick up his kids and go to soccer practice or something, you know, and he just, he wasn't as high as I was. And then we'd walk back a month later and maybe there was a defense verdict. We lost the case and he had exactly the same. He's like, we tried a really good case and it stinks. He said, flush it out tonight and let's get back to work tomorrow. (laughs) Isn't it funny how business and sports kind of run parallel? He sounds like Bill Belichick won the game, but we're now thinking about Detroit. I think it's a good thing in life. And you're talking about salespeople. I can imagine they just landed a big deal and they're all high about it. And then maybe a month later, they're back down. I mean, I guess there's peaks and valleys. 
I think what it does, if you over-celebrate or even get down too much, it takes you out of what made you successful because if you're going to go out celebrating, you're not prospecting and you're not doing the things. And that doesn't affect you immediately today, but it does affect you 30, 60, 90 days down the road. Absolutely. You know, and I've taken that to heart with my kids. I've got some high-achieving kids, one at Rhodes College and one at Baylor and one fixing to hopefully be at Baylor. And I've seen it with them. Like they have a test that's just, they knock it out of the park and I'll tell them that's wonderful, but keep it up. Right. You know, mm-hmm. they've always wondered why I was silently hard on them. I don't ever raise my voice or anything like that because then they hit that valley and they're having a hard time with something. I'm like, you're going to get on the other side of this. Don't worry about it. Just keep plugging away. Keep working, work yeah. harder at what you don't know than what you do know. And I think it's the same in business. Absolutely the same. So you're working with John starting to grow the firm. How does Jay Kenimer come into the picture? How do you guys meet, then decide to purchase the firm from John? Well, so I started in May of 97 with John. And about the time I tried that murder case and John loved it, he said, well, you're going to get out of the criminal practice because we're too busy, but I want you to keep that because, you know, I like the fact that you're going and trying cases. So then we keep growing in 98, 99, and somewhere in 2000, John hires Jay. And at first I'm thinking, this guy's a high achiever and he's a go-getter and he works hard. And I'm thinking, this guy's competition, right? (laughs) John had set it up as a master stroke, right? Over the years, he had several other lawyers that came and went. Some were there a year, some were there five. But eventually, Jay and I were the two alpha males, you know, to use lack of a better word. But I thought, well, this guy's competition. And John had set it up where he really wanted us to compete because we made him more money, right? But ultimately, it came to the point where I think Jay and I both realized that we were upwardly mobile and we were high achievers and that either John would cut us in on the piece of the pie or we were going to go and start our own firm. And so we literally had some discussions about that. And John realized it too, because we were kind of making him a lot of money carrying the ball. And, And not to sound too cocky, John was a great lawyer, but Jay and I worked really hard. And so then slowly but surely he started giving us some stock each year. And we had a plan where we were going to acquire the majority of the shares of the stock over a period of like five or six years. And then somewhere in there, unfortunately, John got a cancer diagnosis. And so that was in about 2008. And that cancer diagnosis accelerated everything. And basically, John wasn't able to work really 2009 and 10. And then January 11, he got out of the practice law. And Jay and I just totally took over the law firm as far as from the advertising standpoint and everything. And We've been blessed, so this will be our 12th year running the firm, just the two of us. And I guess if I'm being honest about it, that first year I was probably worried about, or even before that first year, thinking, are we going to be able to do this like John did it, right? And that's what I was going to ask you. What were the times of doubt when you started that you said, what have we gotten ourselves into? Well, one of the big ones is we never doubted our ability, right? Jay and I knew we were good lawyers. We knew we could handle files. We knew how to try cases, get cases ready for trial, get the best result for our clients. But from a marketing standpoint, all the public knew was John McMahon. He was the insider. And so there'd been, gosh, by that point, whatever that would be, 15 years of advertising with John. And they didn't know who Brent and Jay were, other than our clients that had worked with us. But we just had to trust it. We stayed with the same advertising company. And we came up with the idea that we were the insiders also, not because we had worked for insurance companies, but because we knew the inside of the courtroom. And so it sounds gimmicky, but it was a natural segue into that. And, you know, it was true. He and I both were board certified trial specialists, and we talk a lot about that in our advertising. But I got my board certification early, like because I'd tried so many cases probably by 2001. 
Why is and, that important? Well, there are over 23,000 licensed attorneys in Tennessee, and less than 300 have a certification, trial certification. And I like to tell people all the time, you need your knee operated on, you're not going to pick a non-board certified doctor. Right. Or your spine or your brain, God forbid, or something. It's way more prevalent in doctors, but it's there for lawyers too, and the public doesn't really know it. But it shows a commitment to excellence. And the standard had to be lowered here in the last 10 years because so few people could even qualify. But when Jay and I got it, you had to have 45 days of trial work. And they don't count like if you're there for two hours, it had to go past lunch. So it had to be a full day of trial work. So jury trials or even a bench trial that lasted all day. And you had to list those. You had to pass a rigorous test that literally is like a mini bar exam. It's an all-day test. Get letters of certification from lawyers you had worked against on the other side. Think about how tough that is if you're burning those bridges. And then certifications from judges that you had tried cases with or you'd practice in front of. And so those judges aren't going to do something like that if they think you're lousy or you're not ethical or whatever. And so he and I both got it, and that was a commitment. John McMahon had it. And in this town, as far as the people that advertise and kind of compete with us, no one has it. And so we're very proud of it. It's a commitment to our clients that we have a greater degree of excellence and preparation and experience. Let's talk a little bit about that marketing. You purchased the firm from John McMahon. You retained the name McMahon Law Firm. You retained the marketing plan. Was that tough from an ego standpoint to say, well, wait a second, my name and Jay's name we're doing all the work, but we're still the McMahon Law Firm, or was it more seeing the value in the brand that had already been established? Well, I like to think I don't have a huge ego. I used to joke to people and say, you put me in the janitor's closet if I make enough money. <laughs> and I don't mean that to sound bad, but it was a standpoint of John had spent 15 years building that brand, and there was a value in the name McMahon Law Firm. In fact, we paid him for that name and eventually paid his estate. So we were smart enough to keep that. I never really got all hung up in, well, we'll just change it. To me, it's simpler to have a one-name firm than Burks and Kenimer or something. And then in the legal profession, there are law firms, Miller & Martin, for instance, they've been dead 100 years or something. Yeah. And so it's a little different, but I don't think Jay and I ever seriously gave any consideration to changing the firm name. Talk a little bit about how important, particularly for personal injury lawyers, marketing is. Because most of the people listening are seeing the commercials, hearing the radio commercials, and, and see a lot of marketing for personal injury forms. It's huge. I mean, old school lawyers, and there's still a couple that are dinosaurs that are against TV advertising lawyers. And I think it was probably around 1980, the United States Supreme Court allowed it. But you didn't see it much. And I think John was one of the very first. And certainly there might have been a couple others early on, but his were quality ads. And he was a quality lawyer. Well, Jay and our quality lawyers and we have no qualms about getting the word out about us. And that's how it is now. And now it's more dog-eat-dog dog than ever. And there's lots and lots of competition. But we still get a lot of referrals from old clients. We get a lot of referrals from other lawyers, especially defense lawyers that don't want to handle a plaintiff's case or don't know how to. But it's important for us to tell the public and show the public, hey, we're here. And not only are we here, we're really darn good at this. And we've been good at it for a lot of years. We're local. We're board certified. We got this team of people that'll help you. We've got expertise in handling personal injury cases and all types of injury cases. We're big enough to have the money to spend on your case. So there's just, we love doing it. It's ever evolving, but it's crucial. In terms of personal injury law, is there a personal connection that says, I want to help the guy who needs the most help? 
you know, I've been blessed in my life. I haven't had horrible injuries in my life. I've had pain, believe me, bad back. <laughs> but, and I haven't had a family member die in a car wreck or something. So there's not a story like that. My story is I knew early on I wanted to represent people, and I didn't want to represent a corporation. No offense, right? But I didn't want to be helping some insurance company beat some little old lady out of some money she deserves or something, to give the example. And I get a lot of reward out of the fact that you know, I'm helping people and I get to know my clients. Nine out of 10 of my clients are just wonderful and I love them. There are difficult people, no different than when I was 16 working at Kmart, you know, and I've learned that too and how to handle that. I give the example, I could take them down to First Tennessee or SunTrust or somewhere and open up the bank vault and get them the largest wheelbarrow I can find and load it up full of cash and they're not going to be happy no matter what I do. And so that's unfortunate, but those are the same people that are fussing because the line's too long at the cash register at Kmart or and nowadays, I guess we'll say, yeah, Sam's Wholesale Club or <laughs> Costco. Costco or something. It's in every industry. You're always going to have someone who good enough isn't. Absolutely. Yeah. But I get a lot of, I just, I love the stories and I love people. And I've got some clients that have been just grievously, horribly hurt, and there's limited money that's available, and they deserved a million dollars, but there was 50000 there or something. And somehow they find the ray of sunshine in it, and they're just, like, happy for the work we've done and thankful for it. And then I've got other people that get a really nice recovery, and perhaps it's more than a jury would have given them, and somehow they're still not happy. And yeah. so I think that's just learning people's personalities. Yeah, a lot to that. A couple more questions for you. Talk a little bit about why you guys do pay it forward. Well, we started that with you. We're general manager at News Channel 9, and it was just a way we were thinking of ways to give back. So I'm a Red Bank grad, grew up here. Jay's a Baylor grad, grew up in Lake Gunnersville, Alabama. But we just have always loved Chattanooga, and I've always thought if you've got the means to do it, figure out a way to help other people. And there's different ways of doing that. I guess you could set up some foundation or something and just give money away. But this is such a great concept because we fund it, but we stay out of the process of picking people so there's no bias. People are nominated by other people, which is the perfect process. And then News Channel 9 will pick the right person. And each story is great, right? And so there's some we remember. We really get to go out about once or twice a year and hand out the money. Most of the time, we're not there, right? And it's just how it's set up. But we love it. And you're coming up on a quarter million dollars you've given away. May will be our 10-year anniversary. And so, yeah, 500 a week, 1,000 some weeks when there's something special or even more. And, yeah, we're right at a quarter of a million dollars. And that's a lot of money. And so we're proud of that. And I hope we get to keep doing it another 20 years, God willing. Well, it's a great program. I think it really shows the depth of your commitment to this community. Thank you. Yeah, we love doing it, and the people love it, and we get some really wonderful comments back from people, and that that alone makes it worthwhile to me. Yeah, absolutely. Last question for you. Think about this. What would you tell your 25-year-old self about what's really important for a happy life? (laughs) Oh, man, that's a hard one right there. 25-year-old self. Well... I'd say family, and now looking backwards at 53. A lot uh, easier, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot easier. It's it's a struggle early on because you don't have money, and then kids kind of come along later and schedules and things get so hectic. And I think I knew that then. My favorite times have always been family vacations. You know, Even though I work really hard when I'm here, I love that week at the beach with the kids or whatever, and it's just uh, those are my happy times. But I think I would still say that. Just focus on that. Suck up every minute of it professionally, I mean, I don't know that I would do a whole lot different, which is a blessing. I never really thought about that, but that's, I guess I'm glad to say that. 
don't know that I would do a whole lot different. Of course, I would do few things different on a few trials that I've lost over the years, but uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. we could all say that. Yeah, I think you hit the key there for a happy life. Really enjoying and focusing on your family. Yeah, there's ups and downs, but when you look back at it after 30 years, you really remember. Yeah, and here's what I'd say to people, and this sounds like you're talking to people, like you're lecturing, and I'm really not, but find what you're happy doing. And I already knew at 25, I'd already graduated law school, but don't work for money, work for the rewards in it, work for the fact that you're helping people and let that be what makes you happy. And then the money will come, the money will come later. And it doesn't matter if you're an engineer, you're an owner of a business, or you're at the bottom of a business, just life's short. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, find something else and get good at it. And the rewards will come later, but enjoy it and enjoy helping people. Brent, that's great advice. I really appreciate you coming on My Morning Cup. You're a fascinating guy. I look forward to more of these conversations. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.